Today's guest highlights a very important shift in revenue and a very important shift in what marketing is. And we went from organizing people into mailing lists to moving them into communities on Facebook to now truly understanding that the true power of commerce comes from relationships and relationships are now the key buzzwords that everybody rushes to build communities around their product, truly integrated communities, not ones that are lost and there for coupons, but really solving problems, having deep, purposeful conversations and bringing the customer into your brand narrative. So there's a joint advocacy and appreciation for what the product is saying it could do and where the customer feels they want to be a part of. And so if you are building a company and you're not thinking about a community, this podcast with Fahim is probably the one you should listen to today. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Sahim, welcome to Year One. Really appreciate you taking the time to chat to Satish and I today. I'm going to start off by just making our audience aware that this is a slightly different one in that you're not an early stage founder. However, you have, there's two topics that I'm particularly interested in that you have experienced in that I think will add value to our community. And the one is about community building, how to go about it and the importance of community building. And the other one is also you're an investor. So talking a little about investment, but I want to stay a little bit with our normal approach, and that is just to get a bit of an understanding about you as a person. You know, what shaped two or three events that happened in your life that put you on this path of entrepreneurship, if you don't mind? Of course. First of all, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I would say in my early childhood, I had experiences where I used to build stuff and sell it to friends and family, like a typical story that you hear. And I'm sure we've all had such experiences in our childhood. And that fascinating that you could bring your ideas to the world and make them a reality was very fascinating. My parents were both teachers and public servants. So we were kind of limited of bringing our ideas to mind. My father is a very creative person, but of course he couldn't really become this creative entrepreneurial person. Those limitations, in a way, introduced me to this whole notion of entrepreneurship, and I was fascinated. I remember when I moved here to the UK back in 2005, I started watching Dragon's Den. I couldn't believe it at first, that other people could make investments in your ideas and could bring them to the market and grow them and bring about change to, the, to your surroundings. I would say a combination of all these different experiences eventually made me the person or the entrepreneurial person that I am today. So you mentioned that your parents didn't really have the means to, for you to go out and pursue this, right? But were they, did they encourage you? Did they, you know, did they say, you know what, you need to go the traditional route because there's more security in that? Or did they say, you know what, you've got an interest in doing something for yourself. You need to pursue that. That's a good question. Actually, they never discouraged me, but of course they were on the side on 
going the more traditional career path that most Asian families would encourage their children to go. So I studied from bachelor's all the way to the PhD that I did at the University of London in one go, which is a very typical Asian thing to do. Just because not that it was just my parents encouraging me to do that, but of course, I that I was also interested in the topic of entrepreneurship and becoming an academic was a thing in my circles and in my personal, in my culture. So that was a big factor, but I was kind of an outlier at the same time. I wanted to break out of the mold and do something different. They still have their hesitations. So every time I get on a call with them, they're like, have you thought about becoming a lecturer? And I tell them, I thought that this question ended like 10 years ago, but I, I wouldn't say they disagree, but they always show me signs in different things. So Vahim, my, my, my question to you, sir, is now that you're doing what you're doing and the journey you've taken to get this far, could you take us back to a little version and growing up, did you have some ideas around what was the career path or what did you want to do? Or were you influenced by what your parents were doing or family? to where you are today. I wouldn't plan to get here when I was younger, but I would say my parents gave me a lot of freedom to try different things and to build different things. So I always knew that I wanted to become a builder. I wanted to make stuff, uh, bring my ideas to the world. That's something that I always knew I wanted to do, but that I had in academia. And then later on, I was introduced to this world of startups, both here in the UK and in emerging economies, that really opens up a whole vision of starting something in the tech space with the goal of bringing about a meaningful change to, to my surrounding. But I never had this plan in my mind when I was younger, I was just going with the flow, enjoying the early years, then during the teenage years. I slowly got into this habit of like following stories and watching Dragon's Den and those that were this, this behavior, I would say, or encouraging it within different social levels. So that's when I finally got into, I decided that entrepreneurship was going to be a thing for me. Very cool, man. So maybe let's kick it at the elevator pitch. Tell us about your startup. Sure. So, uh, towards the early years of my career, I got introduced to this notion of communities and it was specifically when I was working in crowdfunding space. So those crowdfunding campaigns that I had, that had a community behind them did really well in terms of raising funds. So I thought, why not take this notion of communities and apply to brands? So what we do at Pocket, we build branded communities of social centers or e-commerce brands with the aim of bringing return on investment and bringing customers for those small and medium-sized e-commerce companies. So we identify their most engaged fans. We onboard them to the community and we offer them a variety of different activities that they can participate in, which end up bringing in more business, spread the word of mouth about the business, and essentially growing the business, the customer-led approach. I've got all sorts of curiosity flags going off now because Dion and I are in the education e-commerce space. 
we've been looking at how do we evangelize our customers. Like you said, the new buzz term is community marketing, no longer consumer marketing. Can you talk us through a use case? How does it actually look like when you roll it out? First of all, before I get into that, community, people go to communities for one of the following reasons. They either go to ask a question and find their answers, or they go to find information that they are interested in, or they go to communities to feel supported. You would see this more so in the healthcare space, maybe those with end up in communities with those people that support them, or they get into communities so that they can bring about a meaningful change to their worlds, to their surroundings. If they're passionate about the environment, then they would get into communities where they are into environmental causes. When you talk about brands and businesses, traditionally, the relationship between merchants, whether it be e-commerce or physical businesses, it was more transactional, maybe 20, 30 years ago. But nowadays with millennials and Gen Z, they're really interested to find out what is the origin of the products that they're using? What does the business stand for in terms of values? And what is this business trying to do? Is it just about making sales and selling products and services? Or is it more about doing something with it? And when they find out that the business stands for something other than just the sales side of things, they really get interested. And it's when they would introduce that to their friends and family because they're passionate about a certain cause and they want to spread the word. So that's why we kind of believe that Memphis driven brands will have the higher chance of attracting a community and sustaining that community long-term. So if you're standing for a social cause, if you stand for an environmental cause or anything that you see the public discourse being passionate about, then you would have a really good chance of attracting an initial number of community members and then getting them to spread the word and growing the community afterwards. So building that community in the first place is the most difficult part. Of course, some businesses use it as a go-to-market strategy. Let's say I'm a consultant in certain fields. I've built up my network of hundreds of people over the years. Now I leverage that to build the community and on the back of that. But many businesses do not really have the resources or the means of going down that route. So what they do, they launch the business. Once people find out about them, then they introduce those values and product that's full, and then they slowly build that community. I don't know whether I answered your question or not, but yeah, I like it. What, what, yeah, what Deanna and I always love for our listeners is a use case. Like company A came to you and this is what you and your product did. And this is where company A is after 12 months. Sure. So Unilever, of course, has many brands. One of the brands that worked with us was called the Vegetarian Butcher, which is this no meat company providing meat alternatives, vegetarian and vegan alternatives, essentially. Postages means no meat and so on and so forth. 
uh, they give it very catchy names as well. So when you're trying to build a community around a brand like this, you already have people that are passionate about uh, this no meat movement and about like providing alternatives to the ingredients we have on our tables because they are passionate about animal welfare. They're passionate about the impact the traditional industries have on our planet. So you already have people that are passionate about that cause. When you have a product like this, it's just the case of attracting those people and tell them that this product is trying to change the world in that specific sector. And then once you do that, once you bring those people on board, it's also the case of engaging them in different related activities. So I remember back in January, 2020, uh, the vegetarian butcher team were engaged or were planning for the veganuary, which is of course the best time of the year for their promotional campaigns in order to promote this notion of going vegan or vegetarian. So now that you have this great followership on places like Instagram and you're in touch with them and we are providing them the tools to communicate with these people, why not get them to share their experiences during veganery, share their experiences in the video content and Im in imagery and tag the brand. Of course, this is something that people would willingly do so, but if you tell them, hey, at the end of the month, we are going to feature you, we are going to select the best performing reels and posts, then people feel like the brand is listening to them, is appreciating them for what they contribute towards the movement, and it becomes a two-way street, if I can call it that way. So it's very collaborative. So this campaign was a very kind of a collaborative project that not only the vegetarian butcher were pushing out ads and whatnot, but community of 150 creators who were sharing reels, recipes, dishes that they were putting together using these ingredients, tagging the brand and also turn towards the brand as well. That was, that's what I call a successful advocacy campaign, whereby they draw a lot of about both the cause as well as the brand. Thank you for that. No, that's, that's really useful. I'm curious, Fahim. I mean, at the moment, the strength of a community, while there has to be a purpose behind it, right? The true strength comes from community engagement. Right. There's a lot of brands out there now that are establishing these communities, but it's hard work because you have to be pushing the content. And if you don't get that engagement, the whole community fails to potential. My question is then, if a brand, when they've got a good cause, what type of activity, initiatives, or type of content should they be pushing out there to get the level of engagement they require for the community to be successful? A very good question. And I must say one of the best people for community-related studies is Richard Millington, who has written a couple of books about how to build a community, how to sustain one, and how to grow one. Actually, this morning, he sent a newsletter out and it resonated a lot with what we are doing and what our clients are doing at the moment. And that's, remember what I told you earlier about different types of communities? There are some Q&A communities. So the nature of communities so that people go there to find answers to their questions and then they leave. 
So engagement should be considered in a different way than what you would typically consider engagement as if you're looking at WhatsApp communities or communities you see on Facebook. The fact that people are going to that website or to that community dashboard, you can call it that, do search for the questions they have and then they find answers, that's a metric that should be taken seriously, even if they do not give it a like or comment on it, because the whole purpose of it was that they find answers to the questions they had. But when the community where they are supporting each like the example of healthcare communities or communities within the healthcare sector, that's where you would want members to be uh, supporting each other by giving each other tips or encouragements or supporting each other in different shapes and forms. So that's where conversation is more of an engagement metric. So it, dif it differs for different sectors, for different businesses, and what they're trying to do with their community. But, but it's a lot of hard work. At the beginning, it's going to be the community manager initiating most of the conversations. Little by little, you would see community members engaging with the content and giving it thumbs ups and likes and maybe a few months down the line, see them sharing content as well. Community building is not a short-term strategy. It takes at least, I would say, three to six months, depending on different factors of play and the dynamics of each business and each community. But it really depends on what type of community it is, what type of business you're talking about. So with the vegetarian butcher again, or let me give you another example. So we had the secret deodorant as one of our clients, the sub-brand of PNG. They were launching in Mexico City and they wanted to promote the brand in a way that it also stood for something other than just the product. And they wanted to empower women. Apparently in Mexico, there is this problem of how women are seen in the society and they wanted to encourage values such or to elevate values such as gender equality, women empowerment, equal pay, so on and so forth. So they were putting forward their product in a way that if it doesn't matter if you sweat and you smell, you know, the fact that you are out there trying to achieve what you're trying to achieve should make you a superhuman being. And the fact that they were trying to change the perceptions around women with their product, men with that, what in attracted quite a lot of advocates within the space to their community. And they wanted to find out the best ways to bring about change in that. So the brand would go ahead and share different strategies and different conversations that they could have with their peers at workplace, et cetera, in order to raise awareness and bring about meaningful change to how women were considered at workplace or at other or in all societal levels. So empowering those advocates with tools and topics to go out and talk about them was the perfect sort of content that they were providing their community with. So it really depends why people are in that community, 
and what they're looking for. And then you would be able to give them what. And just out of interest, based on your experience now, community building, and I know you've mentioned healthcare is a good example where, I mean, I can understand that a community, they would be quite easy to build, right? But are there any particular industries where community builds suited than others based on your experience? Absolutely. Subscription-based businesses better because community, one of the return on investments you get by building a community is is a lower churn and a higher retention. And of course, a a high retention is the North Star metric, if I can call it that, for uh, subscription-based businesses. So having a community there helps that a lot because it increases loyalty more than else. When people feel there is a face to the business, there are people they can talk to on the other side of the table and the business is this community of like-minded people that they can engage with. So yes, subscription-based businesses are typically the ones that pioneer this notion of building a community and having a community manager and really investing money into that and not expecting dollar for dollar return on investment. Because when you're talking to more direct to consumer brands in the e-commerce space, they tend to think like, so what, how much did they bring back to me in terms of sales and revenue? Whereas community building, community management isn't about sales all the time. It's about those meaningful relationships between the community manager, the members and members among each other. So it's more difficult with direct e-commerce brands, I would say, but those utilize, those that are selling a subscription and have retention rates, retention differs in different industries, but those that community build. And my last community question is for our audience, they're all early stage founders. Are there any tips, tricks, or pitfalls that they need to be aware of when they start building a community? And what are, what are the starting steps? I think having a community mindset from day one can be really helpful. And the easiest way to go about it is to think of providing support for your customers, but in a community format. Nowadays, you go to websites, there is a, there is an FNQ section, there is the support referred to. Instead of that, why not set up an external channel within your Slack group, whereby others, external like, I mean, customers could join and ask each other questions when using your product or when uh, using your service. And having it in that way builds the community in the long term, brings People feel searching each other and they feel not just me using the product. There are 10 other people using the service or the product like me. And they're all passionate about this business that they're engaged with. So having that mindset from day one really helps with the community building because it takes time. And then, of course, when you have it embedded within your systems, like if you're using Slack, then you would see what your, commu- what your community is talking about on weekly or daily basis. And you can very easily engage with them, answer their questions, and create that community feeling on places like Slack. 
which is very straightforward. That's why I would have for any stage founders. I appreciate that. Well, Satish, so, have you got any? I have a, yeah, I have a question. I love the business model. And a lot of the times when we meet founders and co-founders, especially you're in it for four years now, they either fall in love with a problem and then they go looking for a solution and, and, and the business develops. Or they stumble into a business and then they figure out how to fall in love with the problem. In this particular case, what is it about this business that, that you love? Why is this idea four years of your life? That's such a philosophical question we could go on about it for a couple of hours. I'm sure everyone has a lot to say about what they're doing and what they're passionate about. But to put it simply, I think I'm a people's person who cares about other people's problems, at least those that I can sort of have an influence on or try to help them resolve it in before. So that notion, I think, is closely tied to this notion of communities, where you're building those authentic relationships and you're trying to be a helping hand. You're trying to elevate people's experiences, whether it be in their lives or in their interaction with the business. So that's what fascinates me. And I think that's not something that the recent surge in AI can uh, replicate because those human relationships is something that us humans know best and, and people crave that nowadays. Yeah. The more we go towards automation, the less, um, the more, um, the demand becomes for those human touch experiences where you can talk to someone and have a very awesome relationship and conversation with. So. That's what fascinates me about this whole area and this whole sector. That's what has kept me within the sector for so long. And I think the next decade will be dominated by community-led brands because everything else is automated. People want to be engaged with brands that have some, something other than automation and product and services. So that's what makes me more passionate about the space, I would say. Yeah, no, I love it, man. We share a common love of communities. And, you know, when, when I started Schoolio, that was the idea that uh -huh. after so many years, 150 years of an educational model, parents and uh -huh. teachers are still on two different pages. And really, if I use your, you know, words, we need to build communities around individual kids. And the kids can't compete to please teachers in school with a certain model and please parents at home with a different model. And how do we build a true, community that focuses on each child's ability to be a superstar. And I was talking to my kids about it this weekend because my daughter failed grade 10 math and she's beat up about it. And I was talking to her about it and I said, you know, if your style of learning is different than what the schools are offering you and you can't measure your success or failure according to their books, you just can't because it's going to fish to climb a tree. It'll fail hundred percent of the time. And, but the teachers have yet to have a conversation with the parent. As a community to go, yeah, match this version of school. Here's how you complement it. And so I love what you're doing as a community thought leadership. And that's the space that I think Dion and I can a lot about, even from a schoolio perspective. How do we now move from a true 
transactional community to a community that's evangelized, that believes in the same mission statement and is past the, you know, UGC mindset of let's build a community. So share what you're cooking tonight for a coupon. Like let's move past that into common advocacy for the success of every child, which is kind of the dream that we're working on. So products like yours help us execute without trying to figure out how to do it, which is brilliant, right? As listening, if you go check out the website, the basic plan is only $50. It's not expensive to sign up and at least start seeing some impact. New fan of the product. And we'll give it a test run. Yeah. yeah. And we share a common client, um, Secret Deodorant. Oh, really? So it's great. We're bulk of system. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. I mean, what you said is absolutely true. Those that manage to get it right, they have their hands on gold dust because uh, once you have a community that's passionate about the cause and that's tied to your, they stay there for a very long time because there are all sorts of alternative and competitors out there. But they stay with you because of you and your community and other community members. And it's just something that that network effect has keenness that stops people leaving one business with a great community and going to another because they would lose all those people that they were in touch with. So you're absolutely right. So for him, I at the beginning of the podcast, I said there were two areas I wanted to talk about. The one was community building and the other was investment. Mm-hmm. Now, we've got a huge amount of value from the community building station, and this is actually going to be a question you and Satish, who have invested in companies. I'm sitting here with two seasoned investors. When we know that your financials, we know that market traction, we know that your team, all of that is important when you are doing your due diligence when looking for investment, right? Outside of all of those other things, both of you as investors, what are the things that you are looking for outside of financials, the projections and things? What are the things that you look for when you invest? Or what are some of the watchouts that you'd like to early stage founders that when they go to investors, don't make this silly mistake? I'll hear for him. All right. I'm happy to do that. When it comes to making the investments, one thing that I've deci- I decided from day one that I will speak to was to invest in companies that were purpose-driven. So I was, I didn't really enter the game and to, because the way I invested was through crowdfunding. I told you about my experience in this case. So I kind of wanted to invest in companies that had a purpose behind them because crowdfunding, those businesses that enter or raise funds through crowdfunding wouldn't really return, return your investments anytime soon. It would take them maybe five to 10 years to either be acquired by another company or go public and IPO in a way. So I really wanted to be part of a journey. I wanted to be, to have a share in the future these companies were building and the change they were bringing about. I wanted to be part of their journey and have a share of that more so than the long-term investment. Of course, that's part of it and that matters, but that vision that they had for the products and what they were trying to do with it, I wanted it to be in a way that I would advocate for that business 
going forward. And startups go to investors. Of course, understanding the background of the investor really helps to find out if they are on the same page. Uh, and secondly, I would say having a story behind it. So if I find out that there is this nice story that the founder is telling me about how they came up with the idea and what vision they have for the product that inspires me and I would go for it. I, I, I can't disagree, Dion. I think those two have been on my list. And then the sort of the third outlier thing that I've done in my past is even if the first two in my rubrics, but not a hundred percent, just the bet is on the founder. Like, do I trust this human to trust himself or herself to make different decisions when needed, right? Growing up playing basketball, it's that, you know, shot clock is down to three seconds and I want the ball in my hand. I don't know if it's going to be a layup, a three-pointer or a slam dunk, but I'm going to trust the team to let me do what I want to do to, to win the game. And, and, and not the last piece I started to look for in my, my investment portfolio. Because at some point, any business plan is only as good as, as what the, the rest of the world is going to hit you with. And it's this person having the right um, approach to, to, to sort of make that call and aim for the right average. You know, the other basketball analogy I love is you don't need to win every game to win the championship. You need to win one more than the other team right, in the rest of the season. And so, so that's how, you know, I, I look at it. And school is a similar bet. Taking on education is a huge beast. It's not even about education anymore. It's about emotions. It's about politics. It's about the haves and the haves-nots competing, right? And so we're in there trying to make a, make a shift. But, you know, in the last two to three years, have we made the best decision more often than not? Yes. Cool. Check. The rest... <laughs> we'll figure out along as we go. For him, I really appreciate your time. It's been a, a good conversation. As Satish mentioned, you know, from a Scudia perspective, community building is becoming really an important part of the business model at the moment. And just some of the advice that you shared there, I mean, I'm sure we can take away and start looking at how we apply it within the audience. I guess my last question though, community building, right? Do you believe you have to have a specialist skilled community manager, or is it something that sits under your marketing department and they could run with it? I think marketing departments will soon reframe themselves as community departments, if I'm being totally honest, because of how third party cookies are coming to an end and how people are sick of traditional marketing and advertising models. So that's one thing to bear in mind. And I've already seen CMOs changing their titles to CCOs, community chief officers. Sorry, what was the second part of the question? Oh, now, now you've answered it because I've asked, do you need a community manager? Yeah, yeah. And so I think at the beginning of the journey, if you're looking at early stage founders, it should be something that the founder can carry out himself or herself at the early stages, because if you have a co-founder who is in charge of marketing, then that person should be able to do it. I wouldn't say it's something that you would need to outsource or hire someone for, but then as the business grows and you have more customers and community members, and you have to spend time in other areas, then you would have to hire someone who focuses on that and is great with 
people that's and cares about people more so than where the next sale is coming from. So yes, that's what I would say for the early stage founders. I appreciate that. Vim, once again, thank you for your time. Do you want to do a shout out for where people can get hold of you or find your product? Yes, sure. If you go to pocket.com, you would find out about the product and I'm most active on LinkedIn. So if you search for him for, then I'd love programs for early stage founders, actually about giving youngsters the opportunity to at least try it. So please reach out. Happy to help. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Sathish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BloomX. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bloomx.io to join us on Discord.